You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. Who invented soda water? And you get a bonus point if you can tell me when it was invented as well. I scored zero points. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I have no idea. No clue on on either of those. Not even when? When, I'm guessing somewhere in the early 1900s. A little bit earlier. Joseph Presley was an English chemist, a natural philosopher, a separatist theologist, a grammarian, a multi-subject educator, and a liberal political theorist. Wow. Who published more than 150 books and by accident invented soda water. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So when was it? What was the year? It was 1767, so 200 years earlier than your guess. He figured out how to do it by infusing water with CO2 by hanging a bowl of water over a tub of fermenting beer and realized that, hang on, the water actually contains some CO2 and he discovered it by accident. Wow. Let's not go into why he had fermenting beer in his bathtub. That's a different <laughs> story, right? Why he's making prison wine. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he was a pretty well-established gentleman of the times. So I love carbonated water. We've got a soda stream and I drink tons of it every single day. It's really good stuff. Yes. Well, welcome to episode 30. We've survived 30 consecutive weeks without missing a single week in publishing something. That is a feat on its own. That is. 30 weeks. Yes. It's amazing. We've both had to do things to make it work, but... We have, and that's really cool. It feels good to have 30 episodes under the belt. Yeah, it's amazing, right? I think I read somewhere that most podcasts fumble after the fourth or the sixth episode that make it past that. It's like you know, 80% or 85% of all fail. So that in itself is a feat. And thanks for all the amazing reviews and you guys sharing the content. We often talk about how much we enjoy doing this. So it's like a nice creative outlet and it's just been so much fun. The journey just, I've personally learned so much more about marketing and about brands and history. I mean, it's just really interesting stuff. So here's to another 30 episodes. Yes. And if it wasn't for COVID, we'd have a lot of very interesting (laughs) stories to tell at happy hour now. (laughs) (laughs) Very true. So someday we'll be able to use these stories in person as well. Yeah, I had a happy hour with a friend of mine the other day, a Zoom happy hour. It's just not the same. Yeah. It's not the same, you know. Better than nothing, but not the same. But anyway, should we get started? Let's do it. We have a lot to cover today, and we've got a nice historical story. There are plenty of products out there that arrived from wartime, or they have wartime roots. Kleenex was designed as a filter for gas masks and dressings for wounds during World War I. Silly Putty was made during World War II when the U.S. was experiencing a rubber shortage. And not many people know that Fanta, the subsidiary brand of Coca-Cola, is actually very much influenced by World War II. And they survived and flourished during this time. So in today's episode, we're going to be talking about Fanta. And the overall theme is basically corporate social responsibility, both in the past and the present, and how important it is when it comes to marketing. We talk a lot about nostalgia branding in the show, and sometimes it's good to leave 
the past in the past. And sometimes it's good to really harvest that nostalgia like we've seen in Polaroid, for instance. So anyway, the determination to keep a company afloat during a trying time can pay off in the long run, but it's very difficult to truly know when to leave the past in the past. And I think that's what we're going to be unpacking today. Yep. So let's start with a little bit of history behind this. So love history. Coca-Cola was excelling so much in the U.S. in the early 1920s that by 1916, there were over 1,000 plants that were bottling Coca-Cola products. And despite its success in the States, Coca-Cola wasn't very sought after in Europe. So that was kind of a big push that they had was how can we really drive this global expansion? And incidents like consumers falling ill after French Coke manufacturers accidentally put out bad products due to unhygienic bottling practices meant the international demand for Coca-Cola was very low. It just didn't have a great reputation internationally, and that was something that they needed to work on. So in 1923, Robert Woodruff was elected president of the Coca-Cola company. Wanting to expand Coca-Cola's global reach, Woodruff established the Foreign Department. It later became known as the Coca-Cola Export Corporation and was used to set up official bottling plants in over 27 countries, all of which were overseen by Coca-Cola. The extra plants resulted in really just a global boom for Coca-Cola. They were able to successfully start expanding their footprint. And by 1928, Coca-Cola had become such a global presence that it sponsored the Summer Olympics in Amsterdam, which only further contributed to Coca-Cola's growing popularity. So Such a big company, right? Yes. Amazing. Yes. They've really just spread their tentacles out across the globe. So the Coca-Cola logo is beginning to appear everywhere. I mean, everywhere from hats and billboards to kiosks on the streets. It just becomes very commonplace. So the brand quickly starts to become associated with the ideal American life and internationally known as a patriotic American icon. Yeah, it's interesting that even back then in the 1920s, it was already associated with this American patriotic icon theme because we know what happened when they changed their recipe. We unpacked that story in episode three. Basically, America revolted against them. <laughs> it's a crazy story. So I wasn't aware that their roots was this far back, you know, nearly 100 years back. So Coca-Cola continued to expand throughout Europe during this time, where it eventually reached Germany. A subsidiary was established to put under the supervision of an American expatriate, Roy Rivington Powers. And Powers was reportedly very charming and a very, very excellent salesman. But he also reportedly had bad habits of promising potential clients that they would be rich and owning villas in Florida for purchasing Coke. As questionable as his strategies may have been, power skyrocketed the sales from roughly about 6,000 cases a year to about 100,000 cases a year using this tactic. But unfortunately, Power's bad habits also extended into his finances and bookkeeping. Mm. And as a result, bulls at the German Coca-Cola branch often went unpaid and bank statements were left unopened and the subsidiary was a complete financial mess. Their accounts in serious need of managing. So Powers never really got the chance to fully turn the German subsidiary around before his death in 
1938. And something happens that's pretty interesting after Powers passes away. Max Keith, a German-born man described as an imposing leader, Hmm. became the head of the subsidiary. And after he took over the subsidiary, it went from selling 100,000 cases of Coca-Cola in 1933 to over 4 million in 1938. How many villas did he promise with that? Oh, that's a good question. <laughs> I think his strategy was a little bit more sophisticated than promising drinkers of the product villas in Florida. Nice. And so from around 1936 to about 1940, the German economy was booming. During that time, Keith paid extra attention to marketing Coca-Cola to the hardworking people of his country. To do this, he had to establish the reputation of Coca-Cola in Germany, which meant adapting the brand so that it wasn't seen as an American icon, but as a brand fit for German consumption. Yeah. This was World War II time, right? So this is a very contentious time between America and Germany. Just to put the backdrop there. Yes. <laughs> so there's a reason that he needs to rebrand the product and reposition it. Not a lot of German people during this time want to be associated with an American icon or a brand. Correct. So before he took over the company in 1938, Keith saw an opportunity for this rebranding that he had in mind. And one of his first marketing triumphs for the company was supplying massive amounts of Coke to, again, the 1936 Berlin Summer Olympics. So like in Amsterdam in 1928, Coca-Cola once again catered at the games, and after the Olympics, Keith continued to push the brand in Germany. The Coca-Cola logo continued to be seen on the sides of trucks and various athletics competitions, and Keith attended one such athletic event, and when it ended, he gave a speech, followed by the pledge to Coca-Cola. He did the Nazi Hitler salute with the hand forward and he said speak heil which is basically a political victory salute used by the nazis mm. well and for those that may be a bit rusty with their history adolf hitler rose to power in 1933 so we're starting to see the timeline come together now and began the reign of the third reich now granted he rose to power and there was a period of time between when he rose to power and when things went off the rails. And it was during this period of time that Keith's aggressive and effective marketing at the 1936 Olympics featured more than just the Coca-Cola logo. Like most brands in Germany at the time, their logo appeared beside waving banners emblazoned with swastikas. And if you think about like the Olympics, we have marketing all the time that has the American flag positioned next to a product logo in some sort of advertisement, right? Sure. It's just very yeah. common practice. So it was common practice back then and clearly created something that some of the people didn't expect and would become something that would be a really significant blemish as history has its chance to evaluate the results of what happened with Nazi Germany. So his efforts to rebrand Coca-Cola in Germany involved taking steps to identify Coke with Nazism, including sending sales teams to mass patriotic events. Keith put Coke at the center of a 1937 exhibition showcasing Nazi Germany's industry, and he built a working bottling plant in the middle of the fair. And then in 1938, 
Keith held a convention for Coke Germany's 1,500 salesmen and bottlers. Journalist Ralph McGill describes it as follows, quote, A giant picture of Hitler that covered the entire back wall, a picture that inspired frequent stiff-armed salutes and shouts of Heil Hitler, end quote. Wow. So Keith speaking from beneath a huge Coca-Cola banner bearing three enormous swastikas called for a massive Spiegel, and again, that's what was used in a political victory speech, basically. And in April 1939, just after Hitler turned 50, the Coca-Cola Germany company subsidiary turned 10. And at the celebration, Keith exhorted the crowds again with another Spiegel. And as a quote from him from that speech, to commemorate our deepest admiration and gratitude for the Fuhrer who had led our nation into a brilliant higher sphere, unquote. So he's definitely starting to align himself and the organization very tightly with Nazis and with Hitler during this time. The timing gets interesting here. So we're still in the 40s. So when 1940 rolled around, the new decade marked the beginning of a new stage of the World War II. And when the attack on Pearl Harbor in 1941, Obviously, the United States formally entered World War II, declaring Germany a enemy and used the Trading with the Enemy Act of 1917 to enforce a full embargo on the Axis powers. So following the embargo, many multinational businesses operating in Germany at the time were unable to continue making products. So Keith made a very tactical decision. He wanted Coca-Cola to be a German drink for German people, just like an American drink for American people in the U.S. So now, rather than reshaping the brand to fit a new mold, Keith really sees this opportunity to create something just entirely new and try to get around this embargo. So this leads Keith to oversee the creation of an entirely new an exclusively German soft drink that he could produce in Germany under the Coca-Cola umbrella, but essentially skirt those embargo issues. So Keith had chemists concoct a soda that was vaguely similar to Coke, with the qualifications being that it had to be caffeinated and contain an unidentifiable blend of tastes. But without the help of Coca-Cola and during the time of rations and limited resources, they had to be creative. So rather than being made with the secret 7X Coke flavoring, this new soda was made from the leftovers from other food industries, mostly scraps, actually, from produce markets. Mm, that doesn't sound very delicious, does it? <laughs> <laughs> no, but when it's wartime, I guess you make do with what you have access to. Yeah, yeah, it's true. And the scraps that they usually got were things like fruit pulp, like apple fibers from cider pressing and whey, the liquid byproducts from cheese curdling. Mmm, delicious. Yes. Doesn't sound like it would blend well together, but you know, when you're extracting flavors, you can actually do some pretty interesting things. And to your point, this is wartime, right? So they had to be creative. Products weren't freely available like we have it today. So in 1940, Keith's chemists had a final product and the result of making soda from fruit scraps and fruit pulp was a liquid that was a translucent beige color that more closely resembled today's ginger ale. Mm. 
Happy with the product, he asked for the sales team to explore their fantasies, is the word that he used, while inventing a name. And no one in the marketing team ever topped the drink's working title, Fanta, nickname born from Keith's use of the word fantasies. Ah. And that's how the brand name Fanta came around. Interesting. Yep. And they basically, at that point, didn't need to explore any naming, brainstorming further. Fanta was a hit. And it was a good thing because at this time, Fanta basically kept the company afloat. But unfortunately for Keith, after Germany's supply of regular Coca-Cola finally ran out in 1942, due to having been reserved primarily for wounded soldiers in hospitals, Fanta was also all that Germany had during this time. Wow. Super interesting. Yeah, so with little to no soft drink alternatives, Fanta explodes in popularity. It became so prominent in German culture during the latter half of World War II that Keith was actually allowed to skirt around the country's sugar rationing. You know, it's, again, it's wartime. You've mm. got to be very careful <laughs> with every asset that you have, especially anything that can be used to feed the troops. And Fanta may have been good enough to become the most popular soft drink in the German market, just entirely on its own. But after being allowed to bypass the sugar rationing, Fanta has this huge advantage because they're the sweetest soft drink option available to the German people. The only soft drink that actually has real sugar in it, cane sugar. And it basically became this very widely used product. It was used in soups and stews. And sales gradually rose as Fanta became both an enjoyable and practical household staple. In 1943, three million cases of Fanta were sold in Germany, enough for Keith to be able to afford to keep the plant in operation. Wow. So then in 1945, the last stages of World War II, a few months before the war would officially end, Keith was approached by a German general. And despite the fact that Fanta was invented for Germany, and Keith's Nazi-centric marketing that accompanied it, it wasn't enough to completely erase Coca-Cola's global branding as an American icon. So the general ordered Keith to change the name of the subsidiary, and Keith refused. And by sheer morbid luck, the general actually was killed in an air riot just before any action could be taken against Keith. It was a really close call, but it wasn't the first time that Keith defied orders. Mm. But wait, Keith was a Nazi, right? I mean, it sounds like he's this total opportunistic, ready to dive into the party and go full on, full steam in support of the regime. That's the part that I'm not 100% clear on. I think he was a opportunist and he aligned himself with Nazis which might make you a Nazi. <laughs> I don't know how to think about it. <laughs> if you do all the things that somebody's doing and you say you are them, you might be them, but I'm not sure. Let's continue and then see if we can figure it out. Well, early in the war, Keith was appointed to the Office of Enemy Property in the Nazi bureaucracy. Despite his position, he avoided nationalizing his American-owned subsidiary, and Keith also kept Coke employees like American Carl West, who'd unsuccessfully tried to flee occupied Belgium, kept him alive and employed at the plant. How gracious. <laughs> and defying direct orders by not nationalizing companies for Germany and harboring fugitives, 
all sound kind of highly uncharacteristic of typical Nazi behavior. And I think this tracks with the opportunistic view of Keith. And at least on paper, he said that he wasn't a Nazi. So throughout the war, Keith managed to avoid ever officially signing on to the party. When economic tensions increased in Germany during the war and foreign businesses in Germany started getting punished by the German government, Keith realized he would have to be willing to work with the Third Reich to keep his company afloat. And I think as we think about who Keith was and what he was all about, the thing that comes to mind is that owning a business and owning a plant, it's a choice. We all have a choice, right? We can choose how we make our money, how we fund our lives. And this is soda, right? It's not some essential product that, you know, it's so important to keep it going for the survival of the country or the survival of all of the innocent people that are caught up in the war outside of the actual regime. This is soda. You have a choice of how you want to approach things. Clearly, it was a difficult time in Nazi Germany, and you'd have some very difficult circumstances if you oppose the Nazi party. But that is, of course, a choice. And so as I think about Keith, I think about he made those choices, opportunistic or not, there's a level of complicity there. Yeah. And you can lead pledges and say how Hitler, all he wants, whether or not he means it or not. But when Hitler invaded Poland in 1939 and declared war on Europe, Keith feared his own American owned business would be one of the many companies that got seized by the government. And I think that's why he was leaning towards the whole Nazi association in public, but not on paper. However, rather than trying to remain under the radar, like many other businesses during the time, Keith used his connections in the Third Reich to gain a position of overseeing all of Coca-Cola plants in Germany and the territories conquered by Germany during this time. So he actually used the wartime to expand his reach and expand his business. And this new position allowed him to spread Fanta across Europe, which consequently saves other Coca-Cola subsidiaries from shutting down and allowing them to continue employing workers during the wartime. And I just want to note here that we did find a statement in the Business Insider from Coca-Cola where they basically say that Keith had no indication or association with the Third Reich whatsoever. But looking at his actions, I might... <laughs> yeah, it seems to paint a very different story than the official PR story from Coca-Cola. Yeah. Yeah, it actually kind of reminds me a little bit of in the very popular show Hamilton, the way they portray Aaron Burr as this guy who really tried not to have a clear position. He would kind of play both sides of the fence. And in the end, that was kind of what did him in is the fact that he never really took a stand. And now granted, that's a very different comparison because we're talking about two very different sets of moral situations here, <laughs> for sure. Like they should definitely not be confused in any way from that perspective. But it is very interesting to see how that ambiguity of what you're for in certain instances. And honestly, I think at the end of the day, while Keith wasn't willing to sign any documents, his actions, his public actions were highly supportive 
of the Nazi regime. Yeah, and I think this is, for me, one of the biggest lessons, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, but where a brand associates themselves with being in a target audience, a geographical location, or another brand, that's who they become. You can't say on paper you're something and then you act in public or on social media or your credit campaigns in a different light. And that for me is in this story, something that's very true. And I see that a lot with brands today that have their brand promise on paper that's very disconnected with the way that they conduct themselves on a lot of media platforms. And this is exactly what Keith did here. He just did it in his favor and he actually did it really successful. But I think in today's consumer, that's very, very sensitive to marketing and to creative messaging, see right through that today. Yeah. If your brand promise is not in sync with how you conduct yourself, if there's a disconnect there, it really can be destructive for a brand. Yeah. One of the things that I always tell my kids as just life advice is that you're not what you believe, you're what you do. Yeah. And that's, I think, very important from a branding perspective as well. You're not what you believe, you're what you do. You're what you participate in and what you facilitate and what you allow to take place is who you really are versus what you believe. And so it matters what you do much more than what you believe. And so not long after Keith defied the general's direct order to rename the subsidiary, the Allies enter Germany. When they march on German factories in 1945, the production of Fanta ceases. So Keith then hands over the profits of his creation to Coca-Cola headquarters in Atlanta. And when the German and Dutch Coca-Cola branches were reunited with their parent company, Fanta production was actually discontinued entirely. And for the better part of a decade after the war, Fanta wasn't produced or sold. Hmm. So post-1955, we enter the Fanta as we know today, the Fanta Orange, which was originally introduced exclusively in Italy. The new beverage that emerged with a vibrant orange color and was produced with local citrus ingredients, so no pulp and cheese curdles. <laughs> Or leftover scraps. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think in the 1950s they would have stomached that. And the Coca-Cola made Fanta Orange with the hope that it could continue making a profitable product while distancing from the association it once had with the Third Reich. After successfully doing this in Italy, the drink was heavily marketed in Europe, Asia, Africa, and South America. And I was born in South Africa. Fanta was a pretty big deal when I was a kid, like 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. It was like a really hard marketed in your face brand, which I don't see that in the US today anymore, but I, I might just not be the target audience. But anyway, while Fanta gained popularity in the East, designer Raymond Louis presented 25 designs to the Coca-Cola for marketing Fanta Orange in the US. And they settled on the new Twin Peak logo, and Fanta went on sale in the US in 1960. By 1969, Fanta wasn't just popular in the US, it was the biggest selling flavor on the planet. That is just bizarre. More than like Coca-Cola Classic? Yep, they were the biggest brand in 1967. Wow, that's truly amazing. Thanks, Keith. <laughs> <laughs> when you said he handed over the profits to 
the US company, I like visualized in my mind, you had like this big duffel bag stuffed with money and you like arrived there and you like threw it on the floor and said, there you go. There's your cut. (laughs) 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 Yes. What I had in my mind. Yes. It would make for a good movie scene. Well, Fante is known for its very upbeat, colorful advertising. Yeah. Speaking of movie scenes, one of the most recognizable instances of this is in the US, the Fantanas. They use the Fantanas globally as well, but they're a group of young female models, each of whom promotes an individual Fanta flavor. The way they dress matches the flavor of Fanta that they're promoting. So I didn't know who the Fantanas were before we did this. So I looked them up a little bit. And as a dad of two little young kids, it's very inappropriate. <laughs> they dress very skimpy. Very, very skimpy. They do. And it's just really lazy advertising. It's a few scantily clad girls dancing around saying, wanna Fanta. And that's it. That's the whole thing. And it's very representative of like the 80s and 90s where everything was sex sells and that kind of yep. thing. But after a brainstorming session in 2001, the Ogilvy creative team of Andreas Gaglioni, Andrew Ladin, and Bill DeVaris created that tagline, Wanta Fanta, that has become the jingle for the Fantanas in their campaigns. And I just think for Ogilvy, not their best work. Yeah. And that's easy to say in hindsight, but really when you look at any of the ads, it's just very lazy work. So, But they sold it through. It's been in place for a long time. And the campaign lasted from mid-2001 until October 1st of 2006. So it really ran for quite some time. Went on a hiatus. And then three years later, in June of 2009, Fanta relaunched the Fantanas campaign. And then in 2015, Coca-Cola launched this very salty, should we say, colorful, I don't know what the right (laughs) adjective is. Inappropriate? Yeah, unfortunate ad celebrating Fanta's 75th anniversary. Und jetzt eine kurze Zeitreise in Sachen Fantasie. Vor 75 Jahren waren die Rohstoffe für So as you can tell that ad is in German. <laughs> but it references the drink's Nazi history. So the company faces this immense backlash for its apparent reference to World War II era Germany as the good old times, the circumstances under which this drink was created. Specifically, the ad says, quote, this German icon turns 75 years old. And to celebrate this, we are bringing back the feeling of the good old times with the new Fanta classic. Yeah, that's not good. (laughs) It's not good. That's like the whole Big Pens episode we did. I I don't understand how things like that just gets approved. I just don't understand it. I don't get it. But anyway, in response to the backlash following this ad, Coca-Cola took the video down and issued a formal apology, which I think is a good thing. Very often we see brands saying we didn't intend it to be offensive, but they never really say that they are sorry. But Coca-Cola actually owned it and said that they're sorry. And a Coca-Cola representative told Business Insider, quote, the 75-year-old brand had no association with Hitler or the Nazi party, which I think is a little bit late now to say that. And an extreme stretch of the truth. Yeah. That's some PR spin right there. Yeah. So anyway, interesting story, right? And I like it because the association that we have with brands today, that it's so important to be authentic. 
And you and I talk all the time about how marketing is becoming more and more watered down and templatized, meaning that people just grab campaign ideas or technology ideas or programmatic buying engines or whatever, and, and it's losing its authenticity. And it's so important for a brand to be who they say they are and not try to have the whole lipstick on a pig scenario. So what do you take away from all this? I think it's very difficult when you have troubling origins to something, right? The process of putting lipstick on a pig is difficult, but there are better ways to handle it. There are ways to be very clear about what you stand for and acknowledging the mistakes that were made and just being very clear and upfront and transparent about that. That's one of the things that we saw in the Domino's episode, the value of transparency when things go wrong. Transparency is a brand superpower. Yeah, your customers, they gravitate towards it. They love it. Right. That's a great quote, a brand superpower. It's great. What we think is a vulnerability for most of us in the advertising world is actually our greatest untapped superpower. And I think that when necessity meets moral ambiguity, the best thing to do is to do the right thing. It's why values-based organizations are so much more successful because they have a clear understanding of their purpose, what they're trying to accomplish in the world, and then they use those filters as what directs them. And now, granted, you can say Coca-Cola has been very successful and they have different portions of their business that you could say are values-oriented. But in this instance, clearly, the right type of values were not leading the decision-making for how this entire thing was handled. And I think that while Keith is an example of how determination to keep a company afloat during a trying time can pay off in the long run, there are some things that just aren't worth it. (laughs) And you really have to be careful You know, when you use phrases like good old times, what does that mean? What were the good old times? When were things good when you use it in the context of time periods where horrendous, horrific things were happening? And we even see that today, right now in 2020, with people talking about the good old times. And that can mean a lot of very hurtful things to a big subset of a population in the US. Right. So I think it's inappropriate to say the least. Absolutely. There are other products besides Fanta that have wartime origins, Kleenex, Silly Putty, and even M&Ms for that matter, which reminds me that it'll be actually a very interesting episode as well for us to do. But when Fanta was reintroduced to the world in 1955, even Fanta knew it was best to distance themselves from these wartime roots because it's not a good association. Even Max Keith, the guy that did this in Germany, Living among Nazis in World War II, he even tried to distance himself from Nazis when the time was right. So we got to be careful of who we associate ourselves with and more importantly, who we distance ourselves with as a brand. And I love what you just said a minute ago, transparency is a brand superpower. But what you've got to remember, if your foundation of your brand or your product is shaky, then transparency is your worst nightmare. And I think a lot of marketers and brands steer away from transparency because they've got something, there's a crack in their brand story or with their product itself. And all they have is a perception that they need to build around how the public perceives them 
versus just opening the windows and letting people see inside. I think that's why we see a lot of brands that steer away from that superpower because it is their biggest fear, to your point. So now what was once, this is so funny to me, a concoction of scraps and pulp in the Third Reich has actually become a fizzy, brightly colored soda in Italy and is now a drink shared internationally by all types of people. So the brand itself remove how Coca-Cola speaks of themselves is a brand that is accepted everywhere. It's just really interesting of where it came from. And widely used across Europe, across the areas that Germany invaded and gave a lot of problems to. I think very few people know this, so therefore they shouldn't be talking about the good old times in (laughs) Germany 75 years ago. It's just kind of like stepping in something unnecessarily. Exactly. There are some products that you don't need to celebrate the history of. Just focus on the future, right? Because you can acknowledge, hey, the history, hey, it's not so good. Yeah. But there's a good product here that people enjoy. So what Fanta could do better is instead of having a 75th anniversary campaign that celebrates the good old days, they could have a 75th anniversary campaign that is partnered with anti-Semitism organizations. Yeah. And driving a positive story forward about how, hey, We're going to leverage this opportunity to drive positive change and to make a difference and to say we can do better, both as an organization and as a culture. And in that way, they could leverage that transparency to their benefit and still be able to continue selling the product. Because I'm sure when they resurrected it, they looked at all of their data as big companies do to see like what products are performing. Is there anything old that they should bring back? Because with these long 100-year, 200-year-old companies, there's a lot of kind of like recurrence of products and societal, cultural cycles that happen. And so I'm sure they saw great data and said, hey, we need to bring this back. It was super popular. People love it. It does really well in taste tests. Let's bring it back. And you can do that. Just do it the right way. That's a fantastic spot for us to wrap today's episode up. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content. <laughs>